Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 23. We've been talking for the last few chapters about the need for God's people, particularly God's priests, to conduct themselves in a holy manner. And now here in chapter 23, we are reminded of the goal of holiness. The goal of holiness is communion and fellowship with God. We don't want to engage in all the things we've been talking about because those things would keep us from entering into the presence of the three times holy God. That's the idea. In essence, everything we've been talking about, all the sacrifices, all the purification rituals, all the moral and ethical requirements, all of that has been about preparing for and safeguarding our access to this glorious experience, the experience of intimacy, worship, and fellowship with God. This has all been about creating and protecting a meeting space between Israel and Yahweh. Michael Morales says here, Inasmuch as Leviticus 23-25 to describes festive pilgrimages to God's house, along with the redemption and rest entailed in the Jubilee legislation, these chapters form a fitting celebratory resolution, signaling what the tabernacle has become for Israel, a tent of meeting with God, closed quote. That connection comes out more naturally in the Hebrew. In verse 2, for example, when God says to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts. He uses the Hebrew word that is used for the tent of meeting, the Hebrew word moed. So the tent of meeting is the ohel moed, the place of meeting. And the appointed feasts are simply moed, meetings. The tabernacle is thus the place created and consecrated for these appointed meetings. So this is the point. Everything has been building up and leading towards these sacred festivals, these sacred meetings. Obviously, you're going to need a sacred space and you're going to need a sanctified people so that these people in this place can meet with God. That's what all this has been about. And now, This is the schedule of when those meetings, those special meetings, will happen. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Now, at first glance, it might seem odd that a calendar of annual feasts begins with a reminder of the weekly Sabbath. But actually, it makes perfect sense because the annual pattern is rooted in the weekly pattern, which itself looks back to the pattern of creation. Gordon Wenham says here, There are seven festivals in the year, Passover, Unleavened Bread, Weeks, Solemn Rest Day, 
Day of Atonement, Booths, Day After Booths, the majority of these festivals occur in the seventh month of the year. Every seventh year is a sabbatical year. After 49, in brackets 7 times 7, years, there was a super sabbatical year, the year of Jubilee, close quote. So, as Wenham clearly indicates, the annual cycle is rooted in and informed by the weekly seven-day Sabbath cycle, so it is appropriate and necessary to mention it here first. The weekly Sabbath was a day of solemn rest unto the Lord. It was a day to cease from your labors in order to experience and enjoy the Lord. It was a day to be truly human. It was a day to trust in the Lord's provision. It was a day to remember that salvation ultimately is about what God does, not what you do. It was a day that looked back to creation and that looked forward to new creation. The thread of Sabbath runs thick and undergoes many important developments over the course of the canon. So we certainly can't do it justice here, but we did produce an excursus episode on Sabbath when we were working through the book of Exodus. So if you want to learn more about the Sabbath, what it means, how the concept is developed, and how it is ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Christ, and then how it should continue to influence and inform the worship by believers in Christ under the New Covenant, then be sure to go and find that. It's listed under the Exodus series in the Into the Word app. For now, it's enough for us to know that to a great extent, the annual feasts and the super annual feasts are extensions and extrapolations, as it were, of the weekly Sabbath. We jump back into the text now at verse 4. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. But you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Here we have the appointed festival of unleavened bread, which is preceded by Passover. So the Passover sacrifice would be made on the 14th day of the month, and the festival of unleavened bread would begin on the following day and would last for a week. There were to be sacred assemblies on the first and seventh days of the festival. And so, as would be the case on a regular Sabbath, the individual was to pause from their normal labors, so as to attend and participate. For more information and commentary on Passover, see Exodus 12 to 13. Remember, this chapter, Leviticus 23, is just a calendar of meetings. Therefore, it does not supply a great deal of content as to meaning and significance. The emphasis here is on timing. This is a spring festival that generally coincided with the barley harvest. It tends to fall, according to our calendar, sometime in March or April. Verse 9, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheath of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheath before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it, and on the day when you wave the sheath, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. 
And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hin. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain parched or fresh until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. These verses detail the sacrifice that is to be brought by the pilgrim coming into Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This paragraph corresponds to the more general instructions given in Exodus 23:15. There God said, You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. None shall appear before me empty-handed, meaning everyone must bring an offering. That offering isn't specified in Exodus 23, so here it is. The pilgrim would bring a sheath of barley and a lamb for a burnt offering, along with the prescribed grain and drink offerings. Only after these offerings had been given to God was the pilgrim permitted to eat of his own harvest. The idea here is that we want to get used to giving to God first. We don't give our leftovers to God. We give him our first and our best. That is the rudimentary principle being ingrained here. Verses 15 to 22 describe the Feast of Weeks. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheath of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as firstfruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost, took place seven weeks after the first sheath of barley would have been offered. The first sheath of barley being offered marked the beginning of the barley harvest. The Feast of Weeks, seven weeks later, marked the end. So, if Passover was in late March, as it was this year, then the Feast of Weeks will begin in mid-May. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary says helpfully and succinctly here, The celebration lasted for one day only, Deuteronomy 16, 9-12, and was a joyous occasion in which the entire nation gave thanks to a provident Heavenly Father for His abundant gifts of food. 
So in a sense, it was a lot like our North American Thanksgiving. Of course, our Thanksgiving is in the fall, whereas in Israel, because they had a variety of growing seasons and therefore a variety of harvest seasons, they celebrated this festival in the spring. But the same basic themes and emphases prevail. This is a time to be grateful and a time to remember that everything we have comes from the hand of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In verses 23 to 43, we have a description of the fall festivals. The seventh month of the year roughly corresponds to our October. I did my undergraduate degree at York University, and there was a sizable population of Jewish students. So it was always a bit disruptive to the fall semester when we would essentially shut the entire school down just three weeks into term for three Jewish festivals that fall in this month. We have the Feast of Trumpets, followed by the Day of Atonement, followed by the Feast of Tabernacles. But again, that is to be expected. Remember, the annual calendar follows the pattern of the weekly calendar. So just as the seventh day was the main day of worship, so too the seventh month. That's, that's why we have this cluster of festivals. In verses 23 to 25, we have the announcement of the Feast of Trumpets. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. So this was another one-day festival, a time that originally was for reading publicly from the Torah, but that in later generations became associated with the end of the agricultural calendar and thus a sort of civil new year. The festival is first mentioned in Numbers 29.1, which says, On the first day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a day for you to blow the trumpets, closed quote. And then it goes on to describe the various sacrifices to be offered on that day. In verses 26 to 32, we have the announcement of the Day of Atonement. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now, on the tenth day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation. And you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening shall you keep your Sabbath. The Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, as we call it today, was a very special and solemn occasion. It is the only one of the festivals that calls for fasting or self-affliction. And the text says that anyone who fails to observe the day is to be cut off from his people. Now, remember that Leviticus 23 is merely the calendar of sacred assemblies. This is not the chapter you would go to to discover everything you'd like to know about these festivals in terms of their symbolism and meaning. So if you want to learn more about the Day of Atonement, read in particular Leviticus 16. There, the activities and rituals associated with the day are described in detail. Here, we have merely the announcement and the warning to all to mark this day with particular solemnity. Verse 33, 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days, is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation. For presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is the third and final of the fall festivals. It is called here the Feast of Booths. It is called in some versions the Feast of Tabernacles. It is a joyous occasion, and so it creates the same sort of movement that we observe as Christians on Easter weekend. There is the, the quiet, sober solemnity of Good Friday, followed by the joyful, colorful exuberance of Easter Sunday. That's exactly what you're seeing here. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was the low point. It's the equivalent of our Good Friday. That was the festival that intended to focus the attention of the worshiper upon the seriousness of sin. But then hard on the heels of that, there was this joyful, grateful, playful even celebration of the Lord's goodness and mercy. It, it was something to involve the, the whole family and the kids got involved. Everyone would make booths. You would make the booth on the roof of your house or outside the front of your house. Uh, there would be other optional events that you could participate in. You could go and get willows with the priest and you could wave them around and, and, and make a sort of canopy in front of the altar. There were all manner of festive activities that the entire family could get involved in. This was a way to remember how the Lord had sustained the people in the desert and everyone would give thanks for the good land and the good things that the Lord had brought them into. Verse 44. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. So that's the calendar of weekly and yearly festivals. And of course, the latter is rooted in and grows out of the former. Now, what is the significance of all that for the modern day believer? As is often the case, it is possible to get this wrong in two different ways. It is possible, first of all, to underestimate the importance of these Old Testament feasts in terms of their contribution to our understanding of God's redemptive work in the person of Jesus Christ. Gordon Wenham hits that note in the closing paragraph of his commentary on this section. He says, when we celebrate Good Friday, we should think not only of Christ's death on the cross for us, 
but of the first exodus from Egypt, which anticipated our deliverance from the slavery of sin. At Easter, we recall Christ's resurrection and see in it a pledge of our own resurrection at the last day, just as the first fruits of harvest guarantee a full crop later on. At Whitson, or Pentecost, we praise God for the gift of the Spirit and all our spiritual blessings. The Old Testament reminds us to praise God for our material benefits as well. Close quote. I hope you see what he's doing there. He's, he's using the symbolism of the Old Testament feasts to amplify our appreciation of the redemptive work of God through Christ. And I think we often fail to do that as modern-day believers. So it is possible to underestimate the value of these Old Testament festivals. But it's also possible to overvalue them, and that appears to have been a significant problem in the early days of the church. Paul said to the Colossians, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Close quote. Apparently, there were some false teachers, presumably Jewish false teachers, who were saying that Christians were obligated to keep these Old Testament feasts. But that's nonsense, Paul says. Those things were shadows and anticipations only. The substance of things belongs to Christ. Dick Lucas says here, In him is to be found all the treasures of spiritual reality and fulfillment foreshadowed in the Old Testament. To discover all that God has for his people in these last days, one must be in Christ. And that is all. Close quote. So, Use these Old Testament feasts, use Leviticus 23 to enhance your understanding and appreciation of Jesus Christ. Use them to better understand the riches and the kindness of God towards you in Christ. But don't obsess over the former shapes and shadows. Focus on the substance. Focus on the essence. Focus on the fulfillment of these types in the person and work of Jesus Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.